Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Amen. And good morning. Jen Senders, it's good to have you back in all the way from Louisiana, guys, that came to serve us and be with our community. Uh, if I've not met you yet, my name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor of our church, and you have joined us in a teaching series in the book of Genesis. And guys, today we come to a familiar but like really challenging passage. And so if you're taking notes, uh, today's message is titled The Flood and Forgiveness. The Flood and Forgiveness. And you know, it's a challenging passage, guys, that if you grow up in like a traditional church setting and you go to the children's wing of the church, what do you often see on the walls? Happy animals and murals of arcs and happy faces. And so that's like the church's way of like trying to like lighten up this really challenging story. So when I grew up, I thought like, oh, the flood was a happy scene where everyone just kind of got in a boat together and went on a yacht and kind of had a good trip together. That's really not what we're seeing today. In fact, it's incredibly challenging. And in fact, it's challenging for all sorts of reasons, right? The flood is hard for us theologically, right? Because you look at this and we're like, God, are you really loving? Are you really patient? How could you be loving, but yet destroy people? Destroy animals, destroy the earth with a flood? It, it, it seems challenging for us theologically, but also it brings up scientific challenges, right? Like, was the flood even real? Like, if it was real, was it a global flood? Was it a regional flood? Was it a local flood? It brings up a lot of questions for us. If there was a flood, do we have historical proof, archaeological proof, geological proof? Guys, it's challenging for all sorts of reasons. But guys, listen, if you're willing to like really engage the story and consider some of the historical evidence of a flood, then the challenge of today's text will really be worth it. And so here's how we're gonna navigate uh, this whole narrative. Uh, we're gonna ca- cover chapter six today and just a little bit of seven. And then we'll pause for next week to go through chapters seven, eight, and a little bit of nine. So it's a pretty long story about Noah, his family, this flood, God's covenant. So we're gonna uh, split it up a little bit. And today we're just gonna cover two movements that's in chapter six. Uh, The first movement sort of zooms in on something challenging, which is all about God's holiness and justice. Something really hard for us to grapple with at times. But yet if you're millennial and Gen Z, uh, we do have this sort of resurgence for desire for justice. If something is evil or wrong, or if there's been a power at play to hurt someone that is maybe oppressed or a minority. Gen Z and millennials, we're like, no, we need justice there. And so there's something in this text that reveals where did that idea come from? And so the first movement, we're gonna look at God's holiness and justice. And then the second movement, we're gonna look at God's kindness and mercy on display. Now notice guys, when we talk about God, we need both sides of the coin. If you hear uh, pastors or teachers just talking about God's kindness or his love and mercy, then we don't maybe understand his holiness or his justice or his wrath. Does that make sense? We need to have both sides of the coin. And what I love about the story is it gives you both. So let's look at the first movement here, God's holiness and justice on display. Uh, Now the passage that we jumped in is in uh, verse nine. And what we've learned is that uh, through the course of Genesis, we've seen God create Adam and Eve. We see him create a garden. We see him create everything good and moral. 
and then Adam and Eve fall into sin. They sort of rebel against God and say, God, I want to live my own way. They have kids. They do that. They have kids and they have kids and they have kids and they have kids. And all of a sudden we get to Noah's generation. And so we've seen kind of everyone fall away. And then there's this interesting resurgence that happens in Noah's heart. So that's where we start in verse nine with sort of a summary of the human characters. So here we go. Verse nine, it says, these are the generations of Noah. And that's a great way just to start, by the way. That's almost saying like once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. That's sort of the intro that we're seeing here. These are the generations of Noah. And then the text gives us guys three descriptors of Noah. One of the main characters that's in the story, right? It says this, three descriptors. It says that Noah was number one, a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Now guys, that doesn't mean that he was perfect, Okay, blameless and righteous doesn't mean that he was perfect. It means that he did walk with God. He was obeying God's commands. And there wasn't like a known fault that he was just living in in an unrepentant kind of rebellious way. So it wasn't perfect, but it's showing you that he was walking with God. He was righteous, blameless. And in fact, that's the second thing we see, that Noah walked with God. And three, that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Cool names if you wanna name your kid Ham. As Thanksgiving's coming up, bad joke. I always give you a dad joke every week. There you go. Um, but what I love about this are these three descriptors. And let me ask you, could the same thing be said of you? Could the same descriptors of Noah be said of you? You're righteous in behavior. You are close with God. And then you are committed to family. doesn't mean that you've got to be married or have kids. But if you're a Christian, you know that we are a family. The church is a family to be committed to. So let me ask you, did these descriptors of Noah match you as well? righteous behavior, close with God and committed to family. Yes, if you're married, but also yes, for the Christian to be committed to the church together. Already, already guys, the narrative is already highlighting God's holiness and his desire for people to be holy. And so that's why God's pointing it out in Noah through this text that he's righteous, he's blameless. God's already showing what he desires in his people. But unfortunately, the world around Noah has a different set of descriptors. And so I want you to check those out. Verse 11. Now it says the earth is the opposite of Noah, okay? The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It's a really hard descriptor if we think about it. And if we're really honest, guys, the world hasn't changed too much since this point, right? Corruption and violence are sort of the way we uh, describe what we see around us. Guys, if you like, 2020 was one of the hardest, I think, years for uh, many of us, but we could just see so much corruption. Uh, a lot of us were working from home or maybe you were off work and all we did was just look at the media and we saw political corruption. We saw racial corruption. We saw uh, economic corruption. We saw all kinds of things that were happening. We saw even just people fighting about vaccinations and harming one another. We saw parades and people running people over. Just terrible, terrible things. And guys, this scripture then is often what we see now. The world is filled with corruption and violence. By the way, we're gonna get to some hope first, right? Okay, but we're just going through some hard things right now in this text, okay? Verse 12, and again, God saw the earth and behold, he says, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their own way on earth. Guys, that's the third time that we see in this text, the word corrupt. And it happens in just two verses. So if you think I repeat myself a lot, so does the scriptures here, right? Corrupt, 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 over and over again. God is trying to emphasize a really, really dark picture to show the contrast of really how holy he really is and how good he really is. 
it shows us, this emphasis really shows us just how bad things really got in the world and how different that is from the original goodness of God's creation. Because that word corrupt means to live out of step with the intended good design. It's to taint a good thing with a bad action. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie, but if you just watch the trailer, you're going to see kind of how messed up it is. But my wife and I were watching this movie called The Good Nurse. Has anyone seen that movie? Maybe, nobody. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to, two people, I'm going to ruin it for you. Uh, the trailer ruins it for you, by the way, but there's this one guy that his purpose is to be a good nurse. And so on the surface, he seems like he's kind and he's helping patients and he travels from hospital to hospital. But what we learn is that he's actually harming patients. And he's actually uh, putting a certain chemical like in their bag, in their drip, that's obviously going through their body and it begins to hurt them and take their life. It's a terrible story. But that's the concept of corruption. You take something like a nurse, someone who is doing something good to help people, and he's corrupted the practice. And what was worse is that this is sort of a, based on a true story and the hospitals found out about this guy, but rather than reporting it, they just scooted him to the next hospital and the next hospital and the next hospital. And there was hundreds of lives that were affected and taken by this good nurse. That's corruption. And often when we think about corruption, we think about it from that high lofty sort of world, right? We think about maybe hospitals or corporate corruption or political corruption, or we might think about church corruption or school corruption, and those things are out there, that's true. But God's also not just sharing that there's big corruption in corporations, but there's personal corp- corruption in us. And that's what's hard is that the scripture's talking about a corruption that's in us, the, the lust we have in our hearts and the greed with our money, the, the pride, the envy, the prejudice, the anger. When we're dishonest at our job with our coworker or our boss about what we do with our work time, or we get home to our roommates or our spouse and we lie about the chore we said that we got done and we made up some excuse why we couldn't do it. That's corruption in us. And that's what we're seeing in this text. There is corruption that's personal and familial, institutional. There's corruption everywhere. And guys, as we learned from last week in verse six, that this sin, our our corruption in our hearts and in our world, it grieves God's heart. It breaks God's heart. Because again, what is corruption? Corruption is living out of step with the good design that God created us for. It harms us and it hurts others. And guys, honestly, this is an affront to God's holiness. His plan, his design, his goodness. It's an affront to God who created a good world. And so it grieves God's heart. This is not how it was made. We were not made to lust or to harm or to lie or to have hate in our heart, to have prejudice, for us to be greedy and keep our things and our possessions to ourselves, And it's not how we were designed. So it grieves God's heart. And so the reality, guys, is that the people during this day weren't just a couple of people that made some bad decisions. They just said an unkind word to their spouse, but they were relentlessly, constantly living in violence and corruption as the text does. And so God is sitting back and he's watched this happen for generations and he's interacted with each person through the generation, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so what does God do when the world is destroying each other? They're killing one another. As we read with Cain and Abel, we got all the way to Lamech and he's killing children. What is happening? And God in his holiness and his justice can't just stand by any longer. 
Just like you and I couldn't stand by any longer when we saw racism in our city or you see political corruption at your job or anything. You can't stand by either. You've got to post something on social media or we got to join an activist group. We can't stay put either. And neither does God. God sees what's happening in his good world and he steps in. So what does God do? What does he do? Verse 13. So God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Man, that's hard. For the earth is filled with violence. He repeats it again through them. Behold, again, he repeats himself again. I will destroy them with the earth. Guys, this is such a weighty moment right here. It's the first time in the Bible that we see God say something like this. Guys, we've seen him confront and correct sin. And we've seen him provide loving discipline and consequences for sin. We've seen him do that. We've seen him be gracious and patient and kind. And rather than going and smiting someone in their sin, he, he gently confronts them and calls them out and uses questions. But this is different. So far in our journey in Genesis, we've never seen God respond this way. And so the question is, why is he so intense? Well, guys, this is this very spot that as people, we struggle with the following two competing ideas. We struggle right here. I do as a pastor, as a Christian, many of you, I know you struggle here. And so on one hand, here's where we struggle. We read this passage and we say, God, this doesn't seem very loving of you. Like, why would you step in and punish evil like this? This doesn't seem loving. But then we flip it when we have evil happen to us. And we say, God, if you're so loving, why won't you step in and punish and stop this evil. Do you guys see the struggle we have? God, this doesn't seem loving. Why would you do this? But when evil happens to us, we're like, God, I thought you were loving. Won't you step in and stop this? We struggle with the tension. We struggle at the crossroads between God's justice and his mercy. And guys, in a moment, we're gonna show that that's what the cross is. That there's not this crossroads where we just pick God's justice or his mercy, but that's what the cross is. God giving justice. He's taking life seriously and sin seriously. And so he's killing Jesus for our sake. That's God's just, but he's giving mercy. He's giving forgiveness to anyone who would trust in him. But guys, we struggle at this crossroads of God's justice and mercy. Guys, we want God's justice in some instances when we've been hurt, Guys, by the way, that's what retaliation is. Like when you're angry and you want to lash back out or you want to hit someone or you want to steal. And this happened in my house all this past week with my kids. We were navigating a lot of this issue. They felt hurt by their sister, one of my two daughters. And so she responds back with words or violence and she's trying to get justice. She felt like she was hurt. And guys, all of our hearts do that. When you feel stripped of dignity or something said against you, anger rises up and you want to lash out. You want justice. You're saying, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. There's some sort of consequence that should happen to you. And so all of our hearts cry out for justice when something evil happens to us. But when we do wrong, we cry out for mercy and we struggle at this crossroads. But what I love about the story today of Noah, this narrative, what I love about it is that God is actually giving us both here. God gives you justice and mercy in this one story. God's justice is gonna be displayed in the fact that he won't let evil prevail. He's going to stop it. He's gonna punish the perpetrators. But check this out. God's mercy is also going to be displayed 
They're giving a way out. That's what the ark is. The ark is a way of forgiveness and grace. The ark was God's mercy plan to rescue and to redeem those who wanted to turn from their sin on the earth. Guys, in fact, I think this is really cool in my study this past week. There's two scriptures uh, that God gives us uh, to where we learned that uh, Noah, God used Noah to like warn and encourage others to turn from God. Like Noah just didn't just build this ark and get his little family inside and just take care of his own. But God actually used Noah for years trying to warn and encourage people to turn away from this sort of living that hurts them and hurts others and to turn to God. Second Peter 2 says this, God preserved Noah, a herald or a proclaimer of righteousness with seven others, that's his family, when, he, when God brought a flood upon the world. First Peter 3, we see this, that it tells us that Jesus himself, who in the spirit of Noah, preached to those who were being disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Guys, you realize that some commentators tell us that it took Noah and his family about 75 years to build this ark. That's a long time. Now, people did live a little bit longer back then than they did today. We don't have the amount of pollution and harm and all of that, the ozone layer, all of those issues. They didn't have that at that time so they could live a little bit longer. I don't know how long, but you guys get the idea. 75 years it took arguably to build this ark, which means, guys, that God was actually being gracious and patient for seven decades waiting and warning and wanting people to turn away from their sin and to turn to him and trust him. Guys, honestly, that seems pretty gracious and patient to me. Like when you're angry at someone and you like confront them, do you wait seven decades to do that? That's like unreal. If you are mad at someone and you are just so upset, are you gonna take seven decades to say something? You, pro you probably won't. God waits seven decades and uses Noah to warn and to guide and to point people. And in fact, God even uses a visual means. He, he gives us an ark, like as a visual reminder to the people, hey, I'm encouraging you to turn, turn to God and his way and what you're longing for in your heart, you can find in him. And Noah's proclaiming this, that there's gonna be a Jesus one day that comes and heals our hearts and forgives him. He's proclaiming this. God is using Noah to give a visual means and a verbal means of encouraging people to turn for him. And guys, God is doing the same thing today. God promises to bring justice in all areas of sin. Guys, it is true. God is holy and he will punish perpetrators. Now we love that in our culture. We want that to happen in our culture, but we don't want that to be us. My friends, we can't have either or. If God is holy and just, then my friends, he will punish perpetrators. That's what his holiness and justice means. But for those who turn to Christ, guys, Christ becomes their ark and their salvation. God actually takes their punishment and puts it on himself on the cross. And then God extends his mercy, grace, and forgiveness to them. And that's exactly what we see here with the second movement with Noah and his family. So first we just looked at God's holiness and his justice, but now let's look at God's kindness and his mercy on display Verse 14, then God said to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Not that, yeah, never mind. Let me just pass by the joke. <laughs> make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and covered inside and out with pitch, obviously, so they wouldn't get water in. 
Well, then God gives some blueprints for this building project in verse 15. He says, hey, this is how you're going to make it. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits. Its breadth or width be 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. cubits. And then verse 16, he says, make a roof on the ark and finish it uh, to a cubit above and then set the door of the ark and its side. And then would you make it with a lower and a second and a third deck? Now, I know that many of you use cupids when you uh, do building projects in your apartment or your house. And so you're like, what's a, what's a cubit, right? Like, how, what does this even mean? What modern measurements, uh, one cubit is equal to like 18 inches. I've got some cheesy pictures for you. Uh, so there's an arm. And so they didn't have like, oh, let me just whip out my tape measure. Uh, they would use like, this is, this is what it is. They would take their arms and say, okay, this is one cubit. This is two. It's pretty smart, right? Like, when we're all like, oh, let's measure a foot out. You know, like people, sometimes you've seen people like kind of like walk like this to measure it out. That's what they did with their arms. And during the day, if uh, they used a royal measurement that they would add some extra inches, they would take uh, the width of their fingers and they would add it on. And that's arguably what's happening. It's a super cheesy picture, but I want you to show you that there's some uh, common sense behind what was happening back in this day. Uh, So the length, guys, was 510 feet long if you're using this modern measurement, which is nearly one and a half football fields, if you're interested in that, or three NASA space shuttles. It's for our kids in the room. You're like, how big is the ark? That's how big the ark is. Don't you love my little ark graphics, right? Super cute, right? The height is 51 feet tall, which is just a little higher than a four-story house. There you go. That's the height of it. And its width is 85 feet. I don't have a picture for how wide this thing is. It's just wide, okay? So the cheesy pictures are almost done. Uh, if you think about uh, one of the big challenges is like, well, how do you fit the animals like in the ark? Like what's the storage capacity of this ark, right? Well, here's what you could fit in the ark. Next picture. You could fit 450 semi-trucks, okay? And they say you could put inside one of the semi-trucks, you could put about, about uh, 450 sheep. In, or sorry, 250 sheep inside of that. So inside the thing, you could put 450 semi-trucks. Inside those trucks is 120,000 sheep. You're like, wow, that's super cool, bro. Yeah, right. Just some information for you. We've got some kids in the room. That's how big the ark is, okay? You could fit a lot of animals, a lot of people, and all for my fellow nerds, you're welcome for the cute pictures. So this is how God closes the blueprint. That's how big it is. And he closes the summary in verse 17. It says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which its breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And so here again, you see God's holiness and his justice on display. God gave 75 years for people to stop their corruption and their violence And he warned them through Noah. And even people just seeing this massive boat be displayed, you know that people were like, Noah, what are you doing, bro? We don't even like live right near the water. This thing is huge. What are you planning to do? And Noah's like trying to explain himself. You feel like you're misunderstood? Imagine building a boat when you haven't like seen rain or like water shoot up from the ground before. Like, and he's doing this for like 75 years. Imagine that'd be your job. That'd be a terrible job. 75 years of your life, build this ark and no one, everyone's gonna think you're crazy. That's what he's going through. But the people didn't care and they continued their violence and corruption. And so now it's time for God to step in and bring his justice. 
So now here's where it gets a little bit more challenging for some of us. And it was for me as a non-Christian and guys, you certainly have friends that struggle right here. And the reason I'm sharing this next part with you is as Christians, we don't just look at the Bible and, you know, turn off our minds and our logic. We want to think critically about this idea. And some people have like thrown out the Bible because they're like, you guys believe in a flood and you guys are ridiculous. And we don't have a thoughtful answer of evidence that a flood really happened. Was it global, regional, local? And so I'm sharing this with you maybe because you don't challenge, you to struggle with this, but maybe your neighbor does, your friend does. And I want to equip you, church, how to maybe have some of these conversations. So this is where it's challenging. Guys, what was this flood? Was it real? Is this story just a parable? If there was a flood, was it a global one? Was it a regional one? Was it a local one? If it even happened, do we actually have some real historical evidence? And guys, in fact, we actually do have some evidence, some real concrete historical evidence that there was actually a real and an actual ancient flood. In fact, many historians have found ancient writings and drawings in differing regions describing some sort of massive flood. And although the details differ amongst the different diverse cultures that are retelling this, many prevailing narratives do suggest that there's indeed some sort of widespread, widespread flood on the earth. Other ancient flood stories account like the Sumerian and the Babylonian flood stories give descriptions of big ships like the ark. But in their stories, it's not really seaworthy. It records some dimensions of this giant cube floating around. It's like 120 feet by 120 feet and 120 feet. It's like this giant pyramid that's moving along. Geologists have even discovered some evidence of a massive flood, at least in the region of the Mediterranean area where it's believed that the earliest humans actually lived. And in other places, like in Mayan history as well. Now guys, not every culture around the world records this history, but it's strangely widespread that we have different retellings in different ways in different cultures. Guys, interestingly enough, about eight years ago, and you guys can go on like discovery.com, you guys can see like professional papers about this. About eight years ago, some scientists began to find a new discovery that an ocean probably larger than the size of all the oceans on the earth actually exists deep, deep, deep below the crust. And this is not like Jules Verne discovered to the center of the earth type of stuff. Like this is like research data, like non-Christians are finding this. Now, if that's the case, and there is some sort of great water underneath the deep crust of the earth, then this would even match the description that we find in Noah's account in chapter seven, where the fountains, it says, of the deep burst forth. And I'm just speculating here, but if it's more water than what's on the earth, it's possible that this could help create a flood. Now, biblically speaking for a moment, We know that although God intended to flood and destroy all flesh, not inside the ark, although his remarks do have a strong universal emphasis, this in itself does not necessarily mean that the flood had to cover the whole earth. Since the geographical perspective of ancient people during that time was more limited than the world today, it is possible that the flood, while universal from their viewpoint, did not cover the entire globe. In fact, guys, Genesis, if you're sort of Bible scholars and we want to zoom in for a moment, Genesis implies that prior to the Tower of Babel incident in in Genesis 11, people had not yet spread throughout the earth. They had not yet spread. So therefore, many interpreters argue that there was like a regional flood, a local-like flood that was all that was necessary for God to destroy all the people. However, though, in support of a view that has a global flood, 
Others interpreters point out that the text says that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered and that the water was 15 cubits above the tops of the mountains. And if the mountains of Arat in chapter eight, verse four refers to the range that includes the modern day Arat in Turkey, the amount of water necessary to cover that would be 16,854 feet above sea level. That would account for some massive global flood. So guys, what was it? Was it local? Was it regional? Was it global? I don't know. It's not helpful, is it? But is that the main point? Is that the main point of this? Can God still execute his justice, whether it was local, regional, global? Absolutely. Can God also extend his mercy to the end of the earth who would ever would turn to him, whether it was local, regional, global? Yes. So guys, I would encourage you, if you're more interested in this, there is a million plus articles on the internet good ones that you can read that have all these different positions. And I would encourage you to go check those out. Guys, this is, this is an important discussion, but it's not worth fighting about. It's not a first tier essential doctrine for our church to believe what type of flood was it. There are plenty of Orthodox Christians on all sides of this debate. And again, if you want more guys, we can talk more. I can send you some articles. We can discuss more together. Either way, church, let's not get lost in the details of it so that we miss the point of what God is teaching us in the Bible. God is revealing to us how he responds to the world and its brokenness. And we are seeing with great clarity, guys, that God responds how? God responds with holiness and justice, but he also responds with kindness and mercy. So here's the last part of the narrative that we'll cover today. Verse 18, God says this beautiful ray of hope. He sends it right in the midst of him saying, I'm going to destroy flesh and I'm going to destroy the earth and I'm going to send a flood. He says this, but, but I will establish my covenant with you, a relationship with you where I'm going to be always faithful to you no matter what you do. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, Noah, your sons, Noah, your wife, Noah, and your son's wives, Noah. Guys, what a beautiful promise and invitation that God is offering to Noah right here. God is offering relationship. He's offering rescue. He's offering refuge. And in fact, we learned earlier that 75 years, God was offering that to everyone. God is not just some angry judge in the sky casting down lightning bolts. He is holy, but he's also merciful. And for 75 years through Noah, he is extending the same thing, relationship, rescue, and refuge. And guys, in fact, the same promise and invitation he gives you today. If you would come into the ark, if you would, of faith in Jesus. Now guys, listen, I I do believe that the details of this passage like really are real and they are historical. I do believe that this is a real historical account, but I also believe that these details serve like signs and symbols also pointing us to something greater about Jesus. Guys, in fact, the late British pastor, uh, Charles Spurgeon, which I want to grow up my beard to look like him. He's my favorite pastor of all time. I think he pastored a church when he was like 21, 21 years old. And the things he said, I'm like, I've never even thought those thoughts in my life. And I'm like 34, been to like pastor school and all that kind of stuff. Someone say amen. I don't even know what to do about that. But we'll keep moving forward. <laughs> But uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, points that out as well. This real, but it also points us to something greater. 
And so listen, uh, I want you to listen in for the beauty that's found and how there's different signs and symbols in this narrative point us to Christ. Did you guys realize that in verse six, this one righteous man, Noah, this one righteous man points us forward to who? This one righteous God man, Jesus. Listen, just like Noah's family entered the ark through their relationship with Noah, we enter God's love and forgiveness through a relationship with Jesus. Noah points us to Jesus. Guys, in verse 14, this one wooden ark that would rescue mankind, what's that pointing to? The one wooden cross that would rescue us from sin. Just like Noah constructed an ark to rescue us, rescues people from the flood, Jesus constructed a cross in order to rescue people from the flood of God's justice. Verse 16, remember that one door that was in the side of the ark? Guys, that points us to the one door of faith that we must have in Jesus. Guys, I think it's interesting and Spurgeon draws this out. I love how he says this. He says, some animals like the giraffe, whose heads are higher than other animals, what they had to do, they had to bow their necks in humility to go in by the same entrance that waddling ducks naturally stoop and could enter so low. And so the lofty ones of this world must bow their heads in humility and enter through faith into a relationship with Jesus. The eagle of intellect must come down to the door and the ant of humility can go up. There is only one entrance into a relationship with God and it's the door of faith, not the door of religion, not the door of morality. In John 10, Jesus says, in fact, that he is the what? The door. And if anyone enters by me, he says, he will be saved and satisfied. Even the door is pointing us to Jesus. Verse 19, I love this. It says, the multiple of creatures and all their types board the ark. What's that point to? It points to the multitude of types of people that God seeks to save. Guys, what happened that day must've been a wild story. The grand and standout creatures like the what? Like the elephants and the lions and the rhinos, they're walking side by side with the meek and mild mice and the lizards and the squirrels and the beetles and the ants. What a wild scene. The grand and poor come, the big and small, the fast and slow, the strong and weak, and all are welcomed. And so it is with the ark, so it is with God. All are welcomed to come to him, to turn and trust in him. Even the vilest of snakes were allowed to enter the ark. And so are the vilest of people like me and my past and what I've done, and what I've said, I'm allowed to enter a relationship with God. In chapter seven, verse 16, just like the Lord shut them in the ark and preserved them through the storm, the Lord keeps you Christian and he preserves you in the storms as well. No doubt, guys, there was a terrible storm that year. Uh, we're gonna learn later next week that there was like 40 nights and days of constant rain, rain coming from the sky and water coming from below. It was um, crazy how much rain. But what's interesting is that we never hear in any account that the ark was ever in danger of being wrecked. Guys, I'm sure that the hurricane winds beat against the boat and the hail crashed hard against the roof, but the ark sailed on without one creature being cast out from it. 
In fact, we never hear about Noah and his family wearied from trying to keep the water out, nor do we hear about the frequent repairs happening to keep the boat afloat because the boat was always safe and secure. And though the earth was destroyed and laid to rest, the the ark sailed unharmed above the waters. The ark never sank. The creatures aboard were always secure and Noah's family was always safe. And so Christian, just like this was true for Noah, the same is true for your life as well. You will never perish, Christian. Nothing can pluck you out of the hands of God. You will be preserved in the midst of every storm you face. There will be storms of temptation and failure and heartache and suffering. These you absolutely will have in your life. But the waves and the rocks will never crash the boat. Christ will never fail you. And guys, for sake of time, I've got like five others and we're just gonna like pause it for now and I'll pick it back up next week. But all of this is true and real and historical, but it also is pointing us to something greater. And so guys, as we close, here's two big questions for you to consider as we close. Number one, have you personally, your own life, your own faith, have you personally accepted the invitation to trust in Jesus? You personally, like have you trusted that he actually is the door and the ark of God's salvation from his justice? Have you entered into the ark? Have you heard God's warning about how serious sin is and how that the wages of sin is death and God takes that seriously? He is a judge over creation and God will execute justice. But do you hear his call on the cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. God's mercy is extended to you and I. God is patient for years. But God, if we, if we continue to resist him, and turn away from him, God will execute justice. Have you personally accepted your need for him, your need for the cross, your need for forgiveness? Have you owned that? And Christian number two, where do you often seek for rescue and refuge from whatever storm you face? Because all of us look to all kinds of things for our rescue and refuge. Money, comfort, relationships, sex, alcohol, Whatever it is, you and I run to things all the time, scrolling on social media. Where is your phony ark that will crash and burn up whenever storms hit you? As Christian, where are you seeking to run to? And would you see today that God has provided in himself a stable and secure and never failing solitude that you need? And so Christian, would you, would you turn Would you turn from sin that Noah proclaimed non-Christian? Would you turn from sin and would you turn to Christ? Would you enter the ark by faith? And would you receive a relationship and rescue and refuge that you need? Let's take a moment to pray together.